Words of that song are so apropos for the passage we're going to be in this morning. Hosea chapter 3 is where we will be. I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Out of the depths, that is where we come from, and we come to a loving Lord. But the text of Hosea speaks of how he comes to us first. Hosea chapter 3 is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. One of the commentators that I'm reading in my studies actually declares it the greatest chapter in the Bible, according to his opinion. And if we were to even narrow it down, it contains one of the greatest sentences in the Bible. This chapter has truths that we build our lives upon. But to set the stage for what this unpacks for us, we need to think about something else for a moment. We need to think about marriage, actually a wedding. If you've ever been to a wedding, you know it's one of the most beautiful uh, spectacles that you can witness. It's one of the most lovely human events that we can uh, see. I have the privilege now, most weddings that I go to, I get to be upstage with the bride and groom. I get to see the bride walk down the aisle towards the groom. I get to see the smile that the groom has on his face as he watches the love of his wife come to him. You get to see the crowd and the audience look so delighted at the joining of this man and woman. You get to hear the most um, sacred words spoken between a man and a woman that could be spoken as they pledge their love to one another for a life. It is a beautiful moment It's often decorated with the loveliest flowers and colors that we can find. The bride puts on the loveliest dress that she can find. The groom decides to look acceptable for a few moments in his life. It's a wonderful and joyful time. And there are really few things that are lovelier than that moment as a husband pledges his wife, pledges his life to his wife, and the wife does the same to her husband. It's a beautiful moment. On the flip side of it, nothing is uglier than adultery. Few things in the human experience are uglier than the breaking of the vows like infidelity. It shatters the relationship, shatters the trust, shatters the promises, shatters the exclusive love that was all promised to be shared in those moments, in those vows. It takes that marriage that was once beautiful and full of hope and promise and casts it into a blender and just rips it to shreds by the unfaithfulness of one of the spouses. It turns that which was lovely into something ugly And many of us have been touched in one way or another by the effects of adultery. You may have felt it very specially in your own life. You may have seen the ramifications in the life of someone you love. And you know the havoc that is wrought by that decision to go off and live a life of unfaithfulness. This gut-wrenching experience of adultery is a picture that God uses for us to understand the way that he perceives unfaithfulness to him. All of the beauty of a relationship between a God and his people 
thrown into a blender when his people go off and pursue other gods and worship other things that are not the one true God. And all the heartache that we are to understand coming from adultery in a human relationship is there for our God in a different and more profound way when his people go off into spiritual adultery. God effectively had an intimate and marriage-like relationship with the people of Israel. When he called them out of Egypt, called them into the wilderness, he gave them his law to them, and that law was almost like a vow of promise between him and his people. They would promise to follow him, and he would promise to protect them and love them. That whole ceremony by which God gives his word and his law to the people was almost like a marriage ceremony. And the love and the life of commitment was to be exemplified by his people keeping the commandments of God in the life of the land. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments that God gave to them was in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a statement of exclusivity that Israel was to have to their God. They were not to put any other gods between them and their God. They were to be a unique, intimate, close, exclusive relationship with nothing in between them. Israel was to be married to Yahweh and pursue no other suitors by offering their worship to other gods. They were to find protection from no one else. They were to live under the shadow of his wings. And yet, as you read the Old Testament, it's basically an unfolding of how Israel was unfaithful to their God. Time and time again, they put other gods between them and the one true God. They falter, they stumble, they sin, they flagrantly rebel against their God. And God sees that as spiritual adultery. For most people... If you hear of adultery happening in a marriage, you would say, or most people would say to the spouse who has been offended, dump him, get rid of him. If that one spouse is unfaithful, most people would say to the offended spouse, divorce him, get away. But when adultery has happened, what is the alternative to divorce? What's the alternative to just cutting off the relationship? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Continuing it. But if you seek to continue a relationship with somebody who has committed adultery against you, you understand that there is a lot of cost in that decision. It is a hard road ahead. The restoration will be difficult. And the offended spouse has a costly decision to make whether or not to pursue loving someone who's broken their promise of love. It's a difficult relationship to pursue. Difficult is really an oversimplification of it. So we think about this reality of adultery and broken relationships We come to Hosea 3, and Hosea 3 puts the love of God on display for us. And as we look at the love of God, as he deals with adultery committed against him, 
we see God's love in a way that is not some squishy sentimentality. We see love that is so significantly different from what the world thinks of as love that it almost looks immoral. And it should shock us for how significantly different God's love is from what the world often considers to be love. God's love is so shocking that very few people actually grasp it and accept it for what it is. Many are quick to take the concept of God's love, redefine it, repackage it, and accept the idea of what they want their definition of God's love to be. But to accept God's love as it actually is, what it actually means, will shock you. So I want you to consider three elements of God's love from this passage so that we accept his love as it is rather than looking for something other than it is. So let's read Hosea 3, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come and fear to the Lord and do his goodness in the latter days. First, I want you to see that God's love is shocking. God's love is shocking. At the top of the universe sits God. No one sits above him. He sits there holy and perfect. He's the creator of all things. And as the one who is absolutely unique, who has no peer, has no rivals, he shocks us at times because there really is no one like him. There's no one else like him. And so he is going to do things that are different from the way that everybody else does things. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us in a sense that the things God does are shocking at times. Now, usually God gets criticized for shocking us with his judgment. The way we usually think of it, or people usually think about God and have problems with him is because of his judgment. It's easy for people to become uncomfortable with the idea that God judged the whole world with a flood and destroyed everybody with the exception of eight people and two of each kind of animal hidden in an ark. People easily become squeamish at the idea that God sent Israel into the promised land and wiped out large populations of people. Or people get uncomfortable reading the book of Revelation and they see how God's judgment is poured out on the earth and the people cower in fear at the wrath of God. People find God so shocking that when Jesus came to earth, who is God incarnate, there was hardly a moment that went by that he didn't raise some scandal in people's minds or some controversy surrounded him with what he taught, or the religious leaders weren't debating with him and offended by what he said. God is shocking. 
He is so different from us. His motives, his methods, his reasonings are so different that they shock us. And among the reasons for this is to keep us on our toes. He keeps us on our toes as we ponder him and his ways. And if you aren't occasionally shocked by God and the way he does things, you're not thinking deeply enough about God. But if we were to think of a safe topic that we could discuss about God, a safe place where there is not going to be much controversy, we think we could come to the love of God. That'd be a safe spot. But even here, we find that God's love shocks us. It's because we think often of the love of God wrongly. We misunderstand love and we misunderstand God's love. If we, in our nature, our human and fleshly nature, got to define God's love, we'd have no problem with it. Because when we define it, what we would want to define it as is God loving us and accepting us for who and what we are. That's the way we want to be loved. We want people and God to look at us and find us lovely as we are. To look at us and approve of us in the state in which we are in. To say that we are lovely just the way we are. Love on our terms means acceptance, and acceptance requires no change. This is why the world so often equates love with accepting people for the kind of lifestyle that they live. They want us to approve and affirm. It means acceptance. But God's love is quite different than this. God's love is so different that it shocks us. God's love is demonstrated in just a few brief words here in chapter 3, verse 1. When God says to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Hosea doesn't have an easy job. Hosea is a prophet who is called by God to serve him in the 700s BC. He was called to preach. He's called to preach to a people who didn't really want to hear true preaching. He was called to preach to a people who had kings and people around them who were abandoning God, and Hosea was to call them back to faithfulness to their God. Hosea was preaching to a people who committed spiritual adultery, and Hosea's ministry was not just one of preaching, it was one of living. God called Hosea in chapter 1, verse 2, to go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, So Hosea's whole life was to be representative of the message that he preached. As he preached to an adulterous people, he was to be married to an adulterous woman. And that was to be a message to the people. The adultery of Hosea's wife, Gomer, was horrible. In chapter 2, verse 2, Hosea calls on the children of Gomer to plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. This woman has left her husband Hosea, has gone after other men, and from other men has acquired the things that she wants, wool and flax and oil and drink, bread and water, in chapter 2, verse 5. 
And the whole picture of this is that Gomer is an utter failure of a wife. She's gone all after other men. She's living the life of a prostitute. She dresses as a prostitute. She gets her living as a prostitute. She has abandoned her husband. And to Hosea, at this point, there would be very little that was lovely about her, if anything at all. She's corrupted to the core. She's broken her vows, no longer treated Hosea as a husband, and totally forsaken her family. God gives this picture to Israel. The reason he called Hosea to do this is chapter 1, verse 2. It says, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea had to live with this heartache of an adulterous wife to picture the heartache of an adulterous people bringing upon their God. But this story doesn't end with adultery. It goes on. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Go again. Go again. The first point, when God speaks to Hosea, he says, Go, take a wife. It's a clear enough command. Here, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man. And this points to the idea that God all along had in mind when he was going to have Hosea marry this adulterous woman, Gomer, that it wasn't just to picture adultery. It was to picture love. And so God says to Hosea, go again and love a woman who's loved by another man. Consider this command from Hosea's perspective. Hosea may have been okay with going and taking a wife, as he was told in chapter 1, verse 2. But now he has to go and love this woman who's been unfaithful to him. It's clear that this is Gomer because it expects us to know who this woman is. It's already identified her to us in chapter 1. He tells, he's told to go again. It's to go again to the same woman Hosea has to go. He has to do something. He has to take action. It's not as though Gomer is back at the doorstep of Hosea's house, pleading in a puddle of tears to be taken back. Not as though Hosea finds Gomer heartbroken over her actions, despairing over the life that she's lived. Hosea has to go to her. He has to go to this woman who is loved presently by another man. The husband has to go to his adulterous wife who is living in an adulterous relationship. Perhaps he even had to go down and find the very house of where Gomer is shacking up for the night. This is not an easy command. Go again, God says. Go again, God says. Love. Many men could have gone down to Gomer to issue a certificate of divorce, but he, Hosea, has to go and love. Our culture would 
goes so far as to say that loving in this case would be going to Gomer and saying, it's okay, honey. I know the way that you are. You can't help yourself. This is just the life that you have to live because of how you're made. I'll meet you where you are. I'll accept you as being a woman who needs more than one man in your life. Maybe one way that our culture would define love, but not our God. God says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. It's going to cost Hosea a lot. And if we could picture ever a time where it would be acceptable for a man to say, I'm done with this. I'm not going to pursue this relationship anymore. She just goes from man to man to man and has utterly abandoned me. If ever there was a time where you would feel this man could be justified for saying that he is done with this relationship, it would be now. But God says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. He could pull a Jonah. Hosea could turn the opposite direction and try to run away, but we know how that happens. So, so Hosea must go and love the one person in the world who would look the most unlovely to him. The one person who has sinned against him the most is the one person that he has to go and love. There's no one else in the world who has sinned against Hosea as much as this woman has. And he has to go love her. Well, this is a, an amazing picture of human love that Hosea has to pull off. Ultimately, it's not about human love. It's meant to picture something grander than human love. This represents for us God's love for adulterous, sinful people. The second half of verse 1 gives the reason why Hosea is to do this. It says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. For Hosea, there's really no choice. He had to go and do what the Lord said. And so you could say that Hosea is just acting out of a, a great display of obedience to God. It's God's direction to Hosea to go and do this, and Hosea has to obey. He doesn't really have another option. But who's telling God to do this? Who tells God to go and love the children of Israel? No one. God is free, and in his freedom, out of his own nature, he is so abundant in love that no one compels him to go love an adulterous people. He does it out of his own free nature. God is not constrained by obedience to a command. God just genuinely loves sinners. It's his own decision from his own loving heart. And this is the shocking nature of God's love. It is that God loves an unlovely group of people. It's almost insulting to us because we don't want to be told, you're ugly, so I love you. 
That's not what we want. We want to be told, you're beautiful. I love you. We don't want to hear, I love you because you abandoned me and went after other men. But we have to hear what this love is. This is not a love that says in its heart, I feel a love in my heart for how wonderful you are. Rather, this love says you are poor, pitiable, destitute, sinful, and adulterous. And I love you enough to come and rescue you from the poverty that you have found yourself in. God's love is shown in stark contrast to our love. This text has a kind of a deft irony to it. It uses the word love four times. It says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. Obviously, Hosea's love is going to be very different from the love this other man has for Gomer. But then again, when it talks about God's love, it says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods, and love cakes of raisins. And so God's love is different than Israel's love. Israel has a love. Israel does have a love, but not all loves are equal. They've turned to other gods, and the way that God sums up their love is that they love cakes of raisins. Now, this probably was some sort of food that was used in ritualistic worship for false gods. They would have used raisin cakes, just dried raisins kind of pressed together. It would have been used in false, idolatrous worship. But if you just kind of isolate that phrase and think about it for a moment, what does Israel love? Now, God has been good to Israel. He is the God who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, the one who parted the Red Sea, the one who provided manna in the wilderness, the one who had them defeat Jericho, the one who provided them a land, who loved them, who covered them with his protection, who gave them King David, the one who gave them his law. They have this great creator, amazing, loving God that they can devote all of their love to. And what do they love? Raisins. That's how stupid sin is. When you have the God of the universe willing to accept all of the love that you can pour out, and yet you find more joy in something with a screen or something with a steering wheel or something with a door and keys... You fit right in with a nation that loved cakes of raisins. Oh, the folly of sin. The Lord, however, loves the children of Israel. Now, lest we think that this is just an Old Testament concept, you know the New Testament language, don't you? Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
You could almost replace that with while we were still adulterers. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 3.16, Of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So this is why God's love is shocking. It's because God's love exalts him and not us. So often, our human understanding of love, we want love from others to exalt us. But God's love really exalts him. God's love is an initiative in him that chooses to love people who don't love him. It does not flatter us. God does not flatter us by accepting us for who we are, by saying it's okay. Rather, it shows that our corrupt living comes at great cost to him, but that out of his loving heart, he's willing to do what is best for us. For those who think that they have it together, this definition of love may sound offensive, may kind of grate against you. But for those of us who just can't seem to get it together, who no matter how hard we've tried, we cannot overcome sin on our own strength. We just find ourselves knocking at the door of our next lover. We find ourselves just committing the next act of spiritual adultery. And we're just helpless and destitute on our own. And we really have no strength on our own. We will never turn our hearts to God in love no matter how hard we try. We just find ourselves in the gutter again and again and again. For people like that, you're not looking for love that flatters you. You're looking for love that rescues you. That's God's love. And if, in your, if you're in that position, then you're in just the right position to receive his love rather than reject it because it's not flattering to you. God's love is shocking to us. Secondly, God's love is redemptive. Verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. This is love in action. The command to Hosea was, Go again, love. And so how does Hosea respond? Well, it says, verse 2, So I bought her. It doesn't say, so I loved her, but it assumes the way in which he loved her was by buying her. Love in action is the best kind of love. Hosea goes on a mission to make this woman his wife again. He goes to do what love demands. Now, this is not a flattering picture of Gomer, nor is it the most romantic display of love that we can think of. It is not as though Hosea put together a room full of roses and wrote, wrote some sort of love note and composed some sort of love song and went and sang it outside of the door of Gomer. It's not that kind of love. He did not go and sweep her off her feet. He went down to the slave mar- market and bought her. 
That's love in this case. Gomer got herself into so much trouble, although the details are scarce, but the implication is there. She got herself into so much trouble with her prostitution that she ended up a slave in some capacity. And so if Hosea is going to go and love her, he needs to go and buy her. And so he shells out the money. How would you like to be worth 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley? Not very flattering. Our sin gets us into such a mess that although we rightly belong to God by virtue of his making us, we need him to buy us out of the muck that we have gotten ourselves into. And this is redemption. Redemption for Gomer came at God's initiative when he told Hosea to go again and love this woman. Redemption for us, again, begins at God's initiative and takes being bought. Redemption is simply being bought. The New Testament word that we use for buying or for redemption comes from a word, agora, which is meant marketplace. And it was turned into a verb, agorazo, which originally meant just to frequent the agora, the marketplace, but came to mean to buy at the marketplace. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The point is that we get ourselves into such a mess. Our sin has caused such a disaster in our lives in this world that it takes God seeing us in this mess, loving us enough to pay the purchase price to redeem us out of our sin. Salvation, of course, is free to us, but it's a very costly price that God paid for it. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. God's love recognizes the plight that we're in and does what is necessary to rescue us out of it. And what it took to rescue us out of our plight was the very shedding of his own son, son's blood He sent his son out of love for us to pay the ransom price for us. And so God's love is redemptive. It does not leave us in slavery to sin. It does not say it is okay, the life that you are living. God's love doesn't do that. It takes the action to go and rescue us out of it. So God's love is shocking. God's love is redemptive. And finally, God's love is planned. God's love is planned. Verse 3 has Hosea speaking to Gomer again. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. We have to understand 
God does not rescue people from sin in order that they might continue in sin. That would defeat the whole purpose of his rescue. So when we see this very brief conversation that Hosea has with Gomer, we see that although Hosea has displayed great amounts of love for Gomer, he is not going to let the relationship continue as it has been. He sits her down, and he speaks quite plainly to her and tells her, you must dwell as mine for many days, in other words, a long time. She cannot leave him any longer. You shall not play the whore. Would a loving husband who's gone and bought her wife, his wife back say it's okay if you continue on with this lifestyle? Of course not. It has a plan. It says you cannot continue this way. You cannot belong to another man. The old life has to be gone. Done with. We're starting a new page here. And Hosea wraps it up by saying, so will I also be to you. He promises his faithfulness and his love. And in this way, we see that the love of God acts to purge sin from us. The one who is holy has called us to dwell with him as holy. That's what 1 Corinthians 6.20 said, you were bought with a price, so Glorify God with your body. You are purchased by him. Don't go on in your sinful pattern of living. Now, this, of course, represents something that God is doing with the people of Israel as well. Verses 4 and 5 go on. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. God's laying out here this amazing prophecy for the people of Israel. And we can't forget that while this has application to us as believers in the New Testament church, God's originally speaking to the people of Israel, the nation Israel, and it has direct relevance to them. And so that's the context in which we understand this. It's speaking about the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And it says that this picture of Hosea taking his wife, Gomer, back and giving her instructions about how she's going to live in the household indicates that God has a plan for Israel as well. And it's going to take course over a long period of time. The children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince. At the time that Hosea was prophesying, they did have a king. And for several years in the future, they were still going to have a king. But exile was going to come. After Hosea was dead, or sorry, while Hosea was living, it still would happen that there was exile. And then years after he died, they would remain in exile. And they wouldn't have a king over them, at least not of their own people. And so they would dwell for many days without king or prince. And that really continued on and continues on to the present day. The next real king they had come to them was the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. And they rejected him. And they lived today effectively without him as king. And so this prophecy continues on. The people, the children of Israel, dwell many days without king or prince. But also without sacrifice or pillar. 
meaning that they don't have a place to go sacrifice, which is true today. There is no temple at which they can sacrifice, or pillar, a place where they offered idolatrous sacrifices, without ephod or household gods. An ephod would have been a means by which they would practice divination, an idolatrous practice, and they're going to go without ephod or household gods. And amazingly enough, after the exile of Israel happened about 722 B.C. for the northern kingdom, 586 B.C. for the southern kingdom, the people of Israel were effectively divested of idolatry. They didn't return with a whole heart to God, but they have not picked up the idolatry that they practiced during the period Hosea preached at. And so this prophecy has been true, that the people have been stripped of their idols, but they have not yet turned in a whole heart to God. But verse 5 continues on with the hope for the people of Israel. It says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. God has a plan for this whole world, which includes a plan for Israel. Jesus calls the time that we live in the times of the Gentiles. It says in Luke 21, 24, they will fall, speaking of Jews in Jerusalem, by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And Paul describes this time that we're living in now in Romans eleven twelve as the time when salvation has come to the Gentiles. And we find this amazing accuracy and correspondence among the scriptures that God has a plan and a promise for the people of Israel. Out of his love, he rescues them and will continue to rescue them. But there will come a time where the relationship is completely restored. And we still await that time. It's described as a time that will happen in the latter days. It's a time when they will seek the Lord their God and David their king. When it speaks of David their king, it's not referring to David who's dead and buried in the tomb. It's referring to the greater David. God made a promise to David that he would never lack a son to sit on the throne, and we know that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will come a time when the people of Israel turn and seek the Lord their God and David their king, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce uh, is deceased now, but writes, has written very helpful, Leon, much of the scripture, writes this about this portion of Hosea. He says, we admit as we read this story that our thoughts slip naturally from the story of Hosea and Gomer to Israel's, from Hosea and Gomer to Israel to God's dealings with ourselves, and that it is possible in such a flow of thought for the application of Israel to be lost. But we should not do this, particularly since this is the way Hosea himself applies the story in this chapter. In view of verses 4 and 5, I do not see how so many scholars can deny that there shall be a regathering of Israel and a national repentance of Israel in those last days that are yet to come. Some scholars, particularly Reformed scholars, and by the way, Boyce is Reformed, 
deny any future national blessing of Israel on the grounds that the promises made to her are fulfilled in the church and that a restoration of Israel would be a retrogression in God's saving work in history. But why is this a retrogression? And who are we to say what God must do? Who are we to interpret these passages in any way other than their most obvious meaning? End quote. The reason this is important is because God has a plan that he's working out. And his plan is as good as his word. And his word never falls flat. And so as we expect God to fulfill his word to Israel, we can rest sure that God will fulfill his word to all who find themselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, that he has redeemed you, that he's taken you back to himself and he'll never forsake you, never cast you out. You can be sure of that. So we find that God's love is shocking. We find that God's love is redemptive. And we find that God's love is planned. This passage does not flatter us, but it does make much of God and his love. And you can just picture for a moment what it would be like to be in Gomer's shoes, to have utterly forsaken your husband, completely gone away from your vows, have absolutely no reason to expect that Hosea would ever come and love you again. You've done so much wrong against him. You've sinned so greatly against him. And then one day, there's a knock at the door, and there's Hosea outside, payment price in hand, ready to take you back as his own. Has our Lord loved us less? Here we are, people who abandoned our God. We forsook him. We had nothing to him. We had nothing to do with him. We're without hope and without God in this world. And God in his love sends his son, Jesus Christ, to knock on the door of this world. Are you destitute enough to know that you need this love? That there is no other way that you could ever merit this kind of love? Are you impoverished enough in your own sin to know you don't need to be flattered in order to be loved? Oh, embrace the love of God. It is so good, even if it doesn't flatter you. Embrace it with all your heart. Let's pray. Father, you have painted such a a masterpiece picture of your love. And it leaves us amazed that you would love sinners like us. Father, would you drive away all pride in our heart that would keep us from accepting and embracing the love that you show us? Help us to trust you and to welcome this love into our lives. And Father, we know that you are not loving us so that we can continue our life of sin. And so, Father, we are sorry that so often we stray away into our own paths again, our old ways of living. Would you correct us? I thank you, Father, that 
we need not fear that you will remove your love for us because you've displayed it finally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he declared it is finished. And he ever lives to make intercession for us now. What good news. We thank you for your faithful, steadfast, and permanent love. May we live in this love and love you now in return because of how you've loved us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.